AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Welcome to another episode of Women Who Travel, a podcast from Condé Nast Traveler. I'm Meredith Carey, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Lale Ericoglu. Hi. Today, we're joined also by Lori Woolever, a travel writer and cookbook author. Lori spent more than a decade as an assistant and collaborator to the late Anthony Bourdain. You can find her name alongside his on Appetites, a cookbook with Bourdain, and World Travel, an irreverent guide, which was published earlier this year. Her latest, Bourdain, the Definitive Oral Biography, came out yesterday and features memories from more than 90 friends, family members, and collaborators. This week, we wanted to sit down with Lori to chat about all things travel and, of course, food. So thank you so much for chatting with us, Lori. Absolutely. I'm very happy to be here. Meredith just read out like a whole laundry list of impressive achievements, but I want to rewind a little further back and start with a simple question, which is what role did travel play in your life growing up? Growing up, my family did travel, but it was, uh, there were a couple of places that we went to uh, and, and one of those was up to Lake Ontario. So I grew up outside of Syracuse and uh, my family, my grandparents had a little cabin on Lake Ontario. So that was a consistent place that we would go to. So that's a maybe a two and a half hour car ride, which as a little kid felt like a very long journey. And it was a place that I loved. I learned how to swim there. I learned how to fish there. I watched my mother water ski there. I never actually uh, managed to do it myself, but it was uh, it was a really special kind of retreat. There were a lot of uh, families that bought little cabins on the bays of Lake Ontario in the 1950s and 60s. And my, my grandparents were one of those families. And so there was this really nice community of people who would sort of go up on the weekends and all through the summer. And the other place that we would go consistently, and I say, I mean, we went three times, which seems like a lot now, was was Disney World. Uh, and my my family would, uh, we, we never flew. In fact, I never flew in an airplane until I was uh, more than halfway through college. But we would get into my dad's pickup truck, which had a back seat that would fold down, and we would drive from Syracuse to Orlando, which was about a a two and a half day trip with a with an overnight in a motel in St. Augustine, Florida. And um, I'm sure I didn't realize as a kid how much goes into planning a trip to Disney. And this was, you know, our, I'm talking our first trip was in 1978. So Disney was an entirely different, much more manageable experience then. But still, I think pretty 
wild in terms of, of scope and space and things to do and expense. And uh, it was just, a, you know, absolutely magical uh, experience. Uh, one in which I have no interest in um, replicating for my son. <laughs> I have to be very honest. I totally avoided taking him to Disney. He's now 12 and he's kind of past the age where it's something that he wants. Um, uh, and then the other place we would go is New Hampshire, uh, to sort of the Lakes District of New Hampshire. My dad would go to a conference every year. He was a chemist and he would go to a, a week-long conference and the family would go along with him. We would stay in a little cabin, again, on a lake very much lake people, you know, the ocean was not something that was part of my my upbringing, really. So uh, we were very outdoorsy, very kind of, you know, did things that were kind of uh, ground level and kind of got a lot of bang for the buck, you know, and as, as a kid, you don't even really know what else is out there. So just to go someplace where I could swim outdoors to me was the, the quintessential travel experience. Do you think as you got older, you know, and you started being more independent and, you know, moving into your 20s, 30s. Was travel a slow creep or was it a conscious decision? I'd say travel was definitely a slow creep. I'd say my my confidence as a traveler was something that I built over many years and really just, you know, more and more uh, longer and longer distances, farther and farther away uh, for longer times. But as a college student, travel was uh, primarily by bus. Uh, I went to Cornell University and there were a lot of uh, bus routes that would go back and forth between Syracuse and Ithaca or Ithaca and New York City. Close to the end of my college experience, I, I ended up in New York on spring break and then took a train all the way to Montreal. And that felt like an amazing adventure to be on a train for an entire day in the wintertime and, and see the snow and see, you know, this really very foreign city to me. Uh, and my travel experience also was a function of money, frankly. You know, as a, as a college student, it was like, all that I can afford is a bus ticket or maybe to chip in for gas uh, with, you know, if a friend has a car. And then once I graduated and moved to New York, again, it was, it was well, what can I afford? And, and where, where would I even go? I think it, it took a while to even have kind of the imagination or the sense of what's the purpose of travel. And, and so one of the biggest uh, trips I took as a, as a young, recent college grad was I went to Ireland for two weeks really just uh, with very little sense of what I would do there. But because my family has Irish roots, I thought, well, this is a place I can go that maybe I have some connection to. A lot of Americans go there with that sort of vague sense. Uh, and, I, you know, it was a place where they spoke English, so there would not be that uh, challenge. And if this was in 1997, so it was travel was a different thing where I had to go to an office in Midtown to a travel agent and have them print out a ticket for me. And I had a couple of books that I I, I uh, used the you know the the fledgling internet to book a couple of hostel rooms, but everything felt very um, unknown. I think the internet, and this, I'm not saying anything that we don't all know, but I think the internet certainly completely revolutionized travel. So I'm, I'm feel grateful to have been a young adult in a time just at the tail end of of when thing before things really changed, just to experience it, just to really appreciate now. Uh, how seamless travel can be uh, if, if, you know, the way the way that technology works now. So I, I went to Ireland. I didn't have a super successful time of it I, I, because I 
did not plan very well, apart from a couple of, uh, again, hostile reservations and a vague sense of where I wanted to go. I didn't really, I didn't plan any activities. And so the first few days, it was all right. I was in Dublin. I went to bars and I met people. And then after that, I got very, very lonely. And I crisscrossed the country a couple of times on trains thinking, well, maybe if I go to Galway, I'll feel differently. And I got to Galway and I still felt lonely and uh, inhibited from reaching out to people. And there were plenty of groups of, you know, very friendly Australians and Americans and British who I'm sure would have, you know, made room for me in their entourage. But I, I just, I felt very inhibited. And, and so I always look at, I, you know, I can laugh about it now, but at the time it was kind of a painful thing. Like I, I spent all this money and I took two weeks off of work and here I am. And I've, I felt like I had failed somehow as a, as a traveler because I wasn't having a happy, magical experience. I was having a very lonely, isolated experience, which I learned later is, I think, not so atypical a, a thing to experience at some point or another as a traveler. So, uh, yeah. And then, of course, working for Tony Bourdain, I became a much more confident and experienced traveler. He, uh, at some point, maybe two or three years into working as his assistant, he invited me to go along with his crew on a shoot and to uh, just observe and see what they do and hang out, eat some of the food, and then also to do my own thing if I wanted to, you know, pitch a magazine story uh, that was very, very appealing to an editor for me to say, I'm going to be in Sri Lanka and, you know, I've paid for my travel in this really ethical way. I'm not sponsored by a tourist board or a, a, a resort and I'd like to write about XYZ things. So I did that a few times and, and uh, because I had the structure of a, of a international travel show, I felt a lot of security and confidence. And I was with people who had a lot of experience in the field. And so those were some some really tremendous experiences. I went to uh, Sri Lanka, I went to the Philippines, Hong Kong, uh, and twice to Japan. Sounds amazing. And I feel like that feeling of loneliness on those solo trips, whether they're the first ones or the 15th, are, are feelings that a lot of us feel. Um, before we get into that part of your life, um, post 2002 or so. How did your interest in food and food writing come up? Was it at the same time as travel? Were they hand in hand? Kind of how did that play out in those formative years? I think that food and food writing came first for me because it's an everyday thing. It was something I didn't have to and, and couldn't, you know, for a long time travel to pursue. Uh, there's so much living in New York, you, you don't really have to go anywhere and, you know, to, to experience most of the world food cultures in some form or another. So for me, food was always first. I, really, writing was first. And after college, I thought, OK, I want to be a writer. I'd like to see my name in print, but I'm 22 and I don't really know anything and I haven't really been too many places. And so Somebody a long time ago had given advice, and maybe it was even in a book, not directly to me, but this idea that in order to be a writer, you have to know something. You have to write, have, know some, have something to write about. It's not just enough to, well, maybe for some people it is. For me, it wasn't enough to just make up stories in my head, or I, I didn't have that kind of imagination. I wanted to have an expertise at something, and I really loved cooking in college. Uh, so I went to cooking school two years after college and uh, and sort of used that as a jumping off point to see if I could make it as a food writer. Uh, and I think many people know that trying to make a living as a writer uh, is not a great path to financial uh, security, let alone success. 
So I knew I had to have a job, whether that was as a cook or a caterer. I spent uh, three years, three and a half years working uh, for Mario Batali as his assistant. So I had sort of a baseline salary and also had kind of a bird's eye view onto the New York restaurant scene at a specific point in time, food media, Italy, wine, uh, some little bit of travel. So yeah, I, I would say that, that food came first and then I, I started to understand that the more places I visited, the more I would add to my, uh, my knowledge and experience around food and the things that I could write about. And also that it wasn't just about restaurants. It was also, um, you know, I had the opportunity to start learning about food in people's homes around the world. I did a story in Okinawa about home cooks, and then I did a, a similar story in Sri Lanka uh, in the in the homes of, of different women from different backgrounds in Sri Lanka. So to me, travel was a wonderful extension of my interest in and study of food. You know, going back to starting to work with Bourdain, how did that opportunity come to pass? How did the two of you meet and how did you end up working together moving forward and for such a considerable amount of time? So working for Mario Batali, uh, I did a lot of recipe editing and testing for books. And I had also started my own food writing career for magazines. So I had a lot of experience with recipe editing and testing. Uh, during that time, Tony published Kitchen Confidential, which was the, the memoir, nonfiction, uh, look at the restaurant business and his life, which sort of broke him out into the popular consciousness. Uh, he and Mario became friends and he, Tony asked Mario if he could recommend somebody that might be able to help him with his first cookbook, which was called Anthony Bourdain's Layal Cookbook. So Mario recommended me because of the work I had done for him. Tony hired me sight unseen based on Mario's recommendation. And so we first started working together in that way. And that was in 2002. And that was strictly project based. I did the work. I turned it in. He was happy. And the book came out and, and continues to do well. Uh, and then several years passed. Tony went on to start making No Reservations, uh, the travel show that he made for, I think, eight or nine years and then eventually became Parts Unknown on CNN. I did a couple of different things. I was a private cook. I was a catering cook. I did as much freelance writing as I could and editing. And eventually I was hired at Art Culinaire magazine, uh, which is sort of a quarterly hardcover, beautiful full color magazine that chefs like to collect. And then I went to Wine Spectator magazine and I did that for a number of years. Uh, so then we get to 2009. I've gotten married. I had a baby. And I, I wanted to sort of change my work life. I wanted to have a little more flexibility, some more time at home. And I reached out to Tony and a number of other people and said, I'd like, I need some part-time work. I, I'd like to, you know, be able to spend time with my baby. Just keep me in mind, not thinking, really not expecting much, thinking I would continue to, to work full-time until something came up. And right away, Tony wrote back and said, my assistant's leaving. Would you ever consider being my assistant? I know you've kind of move beyond the assistant realm, but would you ever consider it, you know, since we know each other and I trust you? Uh, so I said, yes, I, I knew that it was a great opportunity, even though it was not exactly the work that I had been doing and not the track that I saw myself on. For me, it was uh, what a great opportunity to work with someone who I know is uh, loyal and generous and, uh, you know, somebody that I just want to be aligned with. And also it was a way for me to have a, a life that made more sense uh, with being a new mom. So I did that. I started working for Tony in September of 2009 and I stayed with him uh, right up until the end. 
it's quite a I, I don't know I think I'm probably I'm speaking from the heart here but that's quite a scary leap to accept a job that is taking you off the track that you had perhaps foreseen for yourself mm-hmm. I say that I accepted it right away but I definitely I, I know that I had some conflict around it I knew that it meant it would be that much more difficult to hit the next level if that was what I wanted. And as it turned out, it really, it wasn't what I wanted to continue being a magazine editor. Uh, as, as much as I loved it, there were parts about the culture that I wasn't sure really fit in with who I was. I mean, I struggled to find enough outfits that weren't like yoga pants and, you know, <laughs> breast milk stained t-shirts and, there were there were a lot of things about the job that I loved and there were a lot of things that I thought, well, maybe there's another way for me to achieve this. I, 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 I've been working as an editor because I want to be a writer. So maybe there's another way for me to be a writer without the structure of, of this job. In a way, I think he saved me from a fear of failure. You know, I, I, as I'm sure you guys know, it's a competitive business uh, to, to get a staff writing or editing job is no easy feat. And uh it's possible that I went as far as I would have gone. And, and so, you know, I, I, I got on a different track, a slower track. I did struggle at times thinking, you know, I'm just toiling here in obscurity and I'm never gonna, you know, go anywhere. And it was, but at the end of the day, it made the most sense to, uh, to take that job and to just sort of get some more sleep, honestly. <laughs> it was so exhausting <laughs> to work full time and have a newborn. So uh, it was the right choice. And, and I, I had a sense, although he never said it from the outset, but I had a sense that Tony would also present opportunities for me, that he would be generous about recognizing that I was not just somebody who could make restaurant reservations and, and book hotels, but that I could also write and edit and sort of contribute in, in a creative way. And he gave me a lot of opportunities to do that. Do you sometimes wake up with the desire to understand the seen and the unseen forces guiding you through this life? And are you ready to begin uncovering the impact of these forces in your day to day? Do you feel that you could use a little push, a little umph, or maybe even a little juju to be reminded of your power within your ancestors to truly understand you? Well, child, if so it sounds like you need a little juju podcast in your life. Hey, bays! I'm your host, Juju Bay. Welcome, Aquaba, bienvenidos to the Womanist Witchy Insight Show, diving deep into the Black healing journey, pop culture juju, and the ancestral spiritual systems that can help get us free. So please come on over and join the ALJ pod family. New episodes drop every single Wednesday, and you can listen wherever you get your podcasts. You, know, you mentioned earlier that going on those early trips with the show kind of really helped you with general travel confidence. How did your relationship with him change the way you saw travel or even traveling for food? Um, How did it impact how you saw yourself and travel? Well, I'll say right off the bat, I got very spoiled around the idea of traveling business class. And uh, <laughs> I, I don't know that it's something that I'll ever, hopefully I'll, I'll get to do it again. But, you know, all of those trips were long haul trips from New York to various parts in Asia and, and Southeast Asia. And it was no coincidence. You know, those are, I wasn't going to waste my opportunity, one opportunity for the year going to Miami or, you know, <laughs> London. It was like, I'm going to go all the way. So... In a way, I got sort of spoiled and saw what sort of luxury and comfort was possible, you know. Um, 
uh, as far as, uh, you know, on the ground, I think I, I was using the example of being in Vietnam, which was my first trip with Tony. This was in 2014. We went to Hue in the central part of the country where he had never been to that city before, but he had been to Vietnam, you know, many times. And it was a place he was really fond of and very comfortable in and a place that made him very happy. So I was really glad to be able to, to see it through his eyes. Uh, but as a as a somewhat nervous traveler and, you know, I had was leaving my young son behind for the first time of any real length. And I think he was maybe four or five years old at the time. And so I just was kind of nervous overall. And I think Tony sensed that and uh, said, listen, like you, you can, you know, you can stay in the hotel and eat the hotel food and hang out by the pool and you know, hang out in the air conditioning and watch CNN, uh, or you can, you know, you can stretch a little bit and, and, you know, you'll see that it's actually, it's very, it's a friendly and comfortable place. He always uh, was given a, a scooter to, to at his disposal whenever he was in Vietnam, because he just really loved to ride a scooter around whatever city he was in. So he said, why don't you get on the back of the scooter with me? And anytime they're not shooting me for the show, you can ride on my scooter with me and, you know, get you a helmet. And you can see that it's actually really safe and it's really, you know, you don't go very fast and it's a really amazing way to see things. It's a really different vantage point. And then when you're on your own, you'll feel more comfortable, you know, getting a, a hiring a motorcycle taxi to take you around, take you out of the city a little bit, see some of the temples, maybe get some, you know, roadside food. And I was really grateful for that little bit of encouragement and that little bit of gentle, tough love and kind of trust your gut uh, uh, pep talk that would really sort of carry I carried that through with me for all the rest of the trips that I took with him, that I, I knew that I could take a little bit of a risk and, uh, and that it was worth it. You know, to go all that way, you might as well really see everything that's there and experience everything that's there. What were those scooter rides like? <laughs> really, really great. I mean, it's true. You don't go very fast. There's so much traffic, right? And, 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 and we're in Hue, which is, a, which is a relatively calm and small city compared to Hanoi and Saigon, which are just really teeming uh, with scooters and bicycles and in some cases, animals and cars and trucks. And, you know, there's just kind of a magic ballet uh, that happens. I think you have to sort of live with it for a while to understand intuitively the way that people are going to move. And uh, so it was, you know, slightly scary, but mostly just really exhilarating to know that that Tony felt comfortable driving the scooter, that he knew where he was going and, and just to see and hear and smell everything up close in a way that you just don't get if you're in a taxi. It was really, uh, it was very intoxicating. Once I did it once, I tried to do it as much as possible. Like if I ever had the choice of a taxi or a scooter, it was always scooter, you know, it was just so much more visceral. You know, just hearing you describe those scooter rides is so seductive and watching parts unknown and no reservations I think everyone sort of felt like they knew Tony mm -hmm. and fell in love with the way that he travels and traveled um, but it took a whole team to make those shows and clearly you were very very involved in the way that he traveled and the way that he moved around the world and what was produced out of those experiences what do you think your own experiences brought to the show and and also, how do you think you've come to define yourself as a traveler now you've had so many more of those experiences? Well, you know, to be clear, I wasn't a part of the production crew. So I think my influence was not so much on the way the show was made or the, you know, but more making sure that Tony was comfortable, that his preferences 
and his needs were communicated to the pre-production staff uh, that the the director and the producer in the field could come to me with questions or concerns. They had a lot of direct communication as well. I don't I don't want to make it sound like he was one of those guys that was like, don't look me in the eye, you know, talk to my assistant. He was very, you know, he wasn't like that. But I, I definitely function as a kind of a second layer just to make sure that he was getting what he needed and wanted, that he uh, you know, he went through a very intense phase of of practicing jujitsu. So a lot of times it was up to me to find the jujitsu gym yeah, wherever he was. Sometimes it was in, you know, Dakar or, you know, uh, Madagascar. I mean, really far flung places that you could always find, if not an exact jujitsu gym, then maybe a karate studio or maybe just a maybe just a gym where he could go and you know, roll around and wrestle with one of the crew guys just to get his gurs out, you know. So I would say that I was definitely a supporting role for Tony in particular. Uh, and then as far as those experiences and, and, and watching and, and learning from him, again, I think it's that, that trusting your gut and taking little risks or sometimes big risks, uh, depending on what the situation is. But but just recognizing how much more there is outside the hotel, outside the sort of, you know, the main tourist drag, but also not uh, beating oneself up or not looking at it as a failure. If you want to sit by the hotel pool, you know, like a nice hotel pool is a really nice experience. You know, if you want to have the buffet breakfast at the hotel, like that's a peak experience. And Tony loved that, you know, and I think he was, he was careful to to say about himself too that you know he traveled for work and he traveled for a living and that he was not ashamed to say that when he was traveling with his family it was you know go to the miami check into the raleigh and hang out by the pool for five days and order cheeseburgers and watch movies on cable in the hotel room like that was as much a valid travel experience for him as you know being out looking for the perfect bowl of bumbo huey in the central market and in Huey or wherever it was, you know, looking for the thing, the, uh, the, the which is the more kind of quintessential uh, Bourdain experience that people think of. But um, he made it made me feel better, you know, to know that it's all valid. And sometimes you're tired and you miss your home and you want the comfort of a cheeseburger, a room service cheeseburger in a hotel room. And that's OK, too. So throughout the pandemic, I really found myself going back and watching a lot of the travel shows that I grew up on, watching old No Reservations episodes, old Samantha Brown episodes, um, and using them as like both an escape and also hopefully a form of inspiration for future trips. Um, you know, a lot has changed in the travel space in the last 18 months. How has your perspective on travel or you know, your thoughts on how we all have been traveling, how have those changed throughout the pandemic? Mm -hmm. You know, I think before the pandemic, I got a little nonchalant about how easy it was to travel. And I think social media, you know, Instagram in particular, made it seem like everyone was traveling all the time and it felt almost like a competitive sport, you know, like, well, oh, you only went to Japan this year. I went to Japan and India and Hawaii. You know, there was this uh, very, it just, it just became so, I don't want to say not special, but almost kind of like a regular thing. Maybe it's just my feed, but it, it, it felt more normal than not to constantly be on the road or, or see people constantly on the road. And so then suddenly when all of that 
was on pause for a, for a long period of time. I think it gave us all a chance to sort of think about well, why are we traveling? Why do we travel so much? You know, what's the valuable experience and are we, are we doing it for clout or are we doing it because we really are having meaningful experiences once we get there? Uh, and I know I am as guilty as anyone else as trying to get the picture and trying to get the weird thing and the cool thing for Instagram. Um, and that's fun and there's value in that. Uh, but I think not being able to travel for as long as we were kind of uh, helped a lot of people kind of reset and think about what's, do I need to go on 10 trips a year or should I go on four really special trips, you know, or do I need to constantly be leaving the country or are there a lot of amazing things within driving distance or within a two days drive? I, I think a lot of people started to rediscover things that were closer to home. Um, I, I know for myself, I, I was in Vermont this summer and I haven't been to Vermont since I was a kid, you know, and I just thought, well, why bother? It's so close. It's always going to be there, you know, and I just and I forgot how beautiful it is and how quiet and how truly wild it is. And, and I know that were things not still pandemic level, I might not have ever gotten in a car and gone to Vermont. I would have gotten in a plane and gone to London or something. So I, I think there is some value in slowing down. But I think also not being able to travel for as long as we did made people really appreciate how transformative it is. And when, when you do that moment, I know for me, when I get to the airport and get through security and then I'm at my gate, I feel like I'm already gone. I'm already in the country that I'm on my way to. And there's that unbelievable relief of kind of letting everything go. Whatever is at home, it doesn't matter. You're on the other side of things. You are going away. And you and, and it's so I, I find it very easy to kind of relax into that. So I think that the appreciation for that, the, the transformative aspect of travel became that much more heightened when we couldn't have it, you know, and it's made people really eager to to pursue that uh, that feeling again. If people want to keep up with your travels or your work, where can they find you on the internet? Well, I waste several hours a day on Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm on Instagram at Lori Wooliver. It's just my first and last name. Uh, and the same handle on Twitter where I'm less active, but I will occasionally pop up mostly to make jokes or to retweet something, somebody that's funnier than me. Uh, and I, I have a website where I've I've collected uh, travel and food writing over the past several years, and that's lauriewilliver.com. Amazing. And you can find Lori's latest, Bourdain, The Definitive Oral Biography, at your local indie bookstore now. You can find me at Oh Hey There Mayor. Me at Lale Hannah. Be sure to follow Women Who Travel on Instagram at Women Who Travel and sign up for our bi-weekly newsletter. Links to both of those and Lori's latest book will be in the show notes. Thanks so much for joining us, Lori. And we'll talk to everyone else next week. Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com. Thank you.